2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Michael Donker talks about his brilliant debut novel, Hold. Michael Donker was born in London to Ghanaian parents. He studied English at Wadham College, Oxford, undertook a master's in creative writing at Royal Holloway and now teaches English literature to secondary school students. He was chosen as one of the Observer's New Faces of Fiction, 2018, and Michael's debut novel, which we're going to talk about today, is Hold. Michael, welcome to Little Atoms.
3: Hello, really lovely to be here.
2: Can you describe Hold for us in your own words?
3: So Hold is predominantly Belinda's story, and Belinda is a 17-year-old house girl in Kumasi, Ghana's second city. And she cleans the house of auntie and uncle, as she refers to them, who are two Ghanaians who are sort of in their 70s, who were born in Ghana and then left Ghana in their sort of 20s, 30s, moved to the UK, worked very hard uh, and then uh, retired back home in Ghana and built themselves a huge old house and have staff in that house including Belinda. And Belinda works with another house girl, a younger house girl called Mary and the opening of the novel is very much about the relationship between these two girls, diligent, sensible Belinda and much naughtier Mary. And then auntie and uncle have some guests come over from london who meet belinda and think that she is the most magnificently uh, well-organized well-behaved obedient kind of young guardian woman that they've ever seen and they're particularly interested in that uh, aspect of belinda's character because back home in london these two guests who've come over doctor and nana have a really wayward daughter called amma and doctor and nana think oh gosh if Belinda were to come over to London to meet Emma, then possibly Emma would be transformed into the sensible young woman doctor, and Nana want her to be. So the novel then kind of focuses on the relationship between Emma and Belinda in London, and Belinda's attempts to kind of keep the friendship with Mary back home in Ghana alive, and all of the sort of struggles and challenges that arise from that. So it's Belinda's story at heart. So the part of the story is the dislocation of Belinda
2: yeah. travelling from Kumasi to London. Absolutely. And you've done that yourself, albeit in the other way around. You've travelled between London yeah. and Ghana. So tell me about something about your own experience of that sort of having grown up in London, then going over and experiencing it the other way around. Yeah.
3: Um, I think one of the things that I always was struck by when I went back to Ghana as a child in particular was how immediately I was kind of marked out as being someone who was different. So I suppose I maybe quite naively, you know, when I was sort of ten, eleven or twelve, would go to Ghana on family holidays. I would assume that I'd be able to kind of blend into the background because I looked like everyone else and, you know, I thought that that would kind of be fine. But people, before I'd even opened my mouth, had this awareness that I had come from the UK and so they had all these expectations about what I was going to be like and how I would behave and so on. So I think that expectation of going home, as it were, which is very much the term that my mother uh, and my father actually used when we talked about going back to school and it was all about going home, it wasn't really as easy and straightforward a home going as that sort of phrase suggests.
2: And this book also, and we won't go into too much detail about this because I don't want to give the story away, but it's a book about sexuality as well. Yeah. You then subsequently became, you know, an out gay man. Um, so you talked about going to Ghana and being different because you mm. were the guy that came from
3: London. Mm. So what's it like for a gay person travelling back to Ghana? Well, oh, it's quite a tense experience in all sorts of ways. I think particularly because there's this weird silence around sexuality in lots of ways in Ghana. So if someone is suspected in inverted commas of being gay, lots of the time it isn't discussed. It just sort of it's just kind of hedged around. And that kind of creates this feeling of anxiety because you're kind of constantly waiting for the moment when someone is brave enough or bold enough to mention that taboo topic, which means that you're constantly kind of walking on eggshells, which is not the easiest of experiences. Um, I think that Ghanaians are becoming a bit more progressive in their attitudes towards sexuality, but I think it's, it's taken quite a long time And I think homosexuality is still very much seen as a kind of Western ill that has been transported to Ghana, Um, a kind of affliction that comes from outside. And I think that's a really big bit of the challenge that needs to be sort of um, overcome. That's one of the big problems I think that needs to be kind of addressed in terms of Ghanaians rethinking their attitude towards sexuality.
2: So Kamasi, which is the, the city that Belinda travels from, mm. is it's a regional capital yeah. of, of Ghana. What's it like?
3: It's mad. It's completely bonkers. It's Ghana's second city, so it's not a sort of frenetic and moneyed as Accra the capital but it's still pretty large it's just completely traffic clogged and uh quite disorganized in the way that it's kind of arranged as the city but it's so brilliant in terms of its energy and the resourcefulness of the people that live there like people don't sit on their asses and sort of just wait for someone to help them everyone's quite plucky and spirited and there's a real sort of sense of doing things into the late hours so there are always things going on at night time whether it's people selling things or dancing whatever it's a very very kind of lively 24 hour city I think I really like it it's a very particular place And I think it often takes me about two or three days when I go and visit to kind of get into the very particular rhythm and mindset of that city. But once I'm there and on board and kind of accept the crazy, um, it's a really fun place to spend time. The novel set in 2002. Let's talk about why you chose
2: that time period.
3: So in 2002, I was around the same age as uh, Belinda and Amma and experiencing lots of the things that Amma in particular is experiencing, so kind of considering university and kind of being on the cusp of adulthood. And so that is sort of why that kind of time period um, felt like a kind of fertile one to mine for um, writing this novel. And also, I, I don't know, very nostalgically, I just love all of the kind of music and pop cultural stuff that was going on at that time. So were you into Radiohead as well? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And Skunk and Nancy. And I I, I loved walking down memory lane um, (laughs) as I was writing the novel and trying to kind of give it that real kind of texture of references and the way that people actually kind of interact with the culture. Sort of putting that sort of thing into the novel really excited me.
2: I want to talk about the three main characters again then in a little more detail. So Belinda, as you said, she's working as a house girl Mm. for auntie. Um, she has a particular way of dealing with that, which she's trying to impart to Mary. Tell us about that.
3: When I was creating Belinda as a character, I was really struck by this sort of challenge in that she is quite passive in all sorts of ways. And obviously having a kind of quite stationary character at the heart of a novel can be quite dry. <laughs> so I was really interested in ways of animating her, but maintaining that passive aspect of who she is, because it felt really true to me that young girls in Ghana in this situation are very polite and obedient and efface themselves essentially because that's what they're required to do in order to work successfully they're not meant to be noticed you know so that sort of discipline that kind of self-policing thing was really kind of key to me I really wanted to get that right and I was particularly keen to show that as a sort of survival mechanism, not just because it's about her functioning effectively in the houses that she finds herself, but also it's about emotional survival because Belinda clearly thinks, and this is something that she is kind of, she inherits, I suppose, from her mother, um, that if you bury emotions, if you repress things, then eventually they'll kind of go away over time and you'll be able to kind of manage uh, your life more efficiently and be more effective and active as a person. And so that's what she's doing. There are two things going on, I think. The kind of policing of oneself is about being a good house girl, but it's also about surviving, I think, too.
2: And Mary. Tell us something about Mary, because she is not like that yeah. at all.
3: Yeah, she- Mary is the, the great disruptor, <laughs> I suppose. And it was really brilliant writing her, actually, because... You know, whenever I kind of got a bit bogged down in Belinda's very kind of austere, severe, sensible ways, you could just sort of throw in a merry conversation, and kind of break things up a little bit. She, for me, she kind of represents something about possibility about another way of kind of operating in this very regimented and rigid Ghanaian society. I think she also represents a bit of Ghanaian culture, which I think is is not often that represented, which is the great kind of sense of fun and naughtiness. And when I was talking before about the kind of energy of Kamasi, I think lots of that is in the slightly anarchic quality that Mary has. Yeah, and I also wanted there to be a relationship between the way that Mary disrupts Belinda's thinking and the way that Amma does a similar kind of thing, but slightly differently and to a very different kind of effect. So,
2: And Amma, um, Belinda comes to London to be basically, as you said, a companion yeah. for Amma. And, you know, Doctor and Nana, they're doing very well. It's a middle-class family. Mm. They live in Clapham. They've got other properties. They live in Brixton. <laughs> they're buying other properties yeah. elsewhere. And... Emma's also brilliant. You know, she's going to a good school. She's doing extremely well, but she's unhappy. Mm. Why?
3: Mm. I think she's unhappy partly because I think of the pressures of being a high achieving young person. And one of the ways that she presents her feelings about that is through withdrawing in lots of ways from academic life. So there's a um, chapter fairly early on in the novel where... Emma's sitting in a lesson and she's just sort of completely switched off, even though this teacher standing at the front of the classroom doing all of these sorts of, you know, cartwheeling things, essentially, to keep the kids interested. Amma just withdraws from the expectations that are placed on her and the pressures of being in that kind of environment. And I think also, more importantly, I suppose... She is coming to an awareness that there are parts of her identity that do not fit in with the way that her parents had imagined that she might be as a person. And it's very difficult when you live in a society which is constantly telling you to be yourself and be who you are, if you find yourself in a situation when that is uh, the most difficult thing to do and potentially the most dangerous thing to do. And she's wrestling with that. How is it that she is the person that she wants to be, given that? her parents are subtly and not so subtly telling her that that's not okay. So that's where her, her sort of deep anguish, I guess, comes from, that tension.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and ZepBound for those who qualify.
2: to Little Atoms. I'm Neo Denny. Today I'm talking to Michael Donker. We're talking about his debut novel Hold. And Michael, this book is fundamentally the story of these three young women and their relationships. And you're a fella. And <laughs> you're also a teacher. You teach yeah. secondary school age children. Um, so I want to talk to you about creating these three young women characters. Mm. Um, Which seems, I mean, admittedly, I'm not a teenage girl myself, surprisingly, but they do seem incredibly (laughs) convincing. Um, Thank you. So tell me about that process.
3: Um, It's a process that I entered into quite thoughtlessly, in a way, in the sense that I wasn't overly conscious of the idea that I was creating three young girls and that I was a man and also I needed to be very careful or that I needed to be very fastidious and do all sorts of research and, you know go and interview lots of teenage girls to really kind of get into their minds. I tried to write quite freely and quite imaginatively, really, which sounds maybe silly or straightforward, but I was imagining um, what it was like to be a teenage girl. And my imagination was supported by the conversations that I've been having with my really close female friends for years and years and years about what it's like to be a young woman and the challenges and brilliant things that come with being a young woman in the world. And also my... Home life. So when I was growing up, it was my mum and my two sisters. My older sister's 10 years older than me, and the next sister is seven years older than me. And so I grew up listening to their stories about what their lives were like and the ways that they managed being in the world through their friendships with other young women. And so all of that stuff was kind of fizzing around at the back of my mind when I was thinking about these three um, young girls in the novel. I suppose also, as well, there's lots of stuff that is going on in these three characters' lives that is common to both girls and boys. All of those things we were talking about before, about kind of feeling um, dislocated or feeling um, not particularly at home in your given context, are things that men and boys experience as women and girls do. So I think there's lots of stuff that's kind of common human experience I'm drawing on as well. And obviously the music as well, as you already said.
2: (laughs) Amma's mother, Nana, she... As I said, she's, you know, she's a a middle class woman now. Mm. But she has this collection of sort of like artifacts Mm. from from Ghana that she collects, which Amma finds slightly ridiculous. But that also means that, you know, she's able she forms a relationship with Belinda that's about, you know, the old country and sort of memories.
3: Yeah. I think Amma's kind of reluctance to buy into the vision of Ghana that Nana presents or to be interested in any of the stories that Nana presents to her was really important to me to get that sense of generational discord. And I think the way that Belinda presents Ghana to Amma is in a much more, I think I think there's much more openness in the way that Belinda talks to Amma about her homeland. And there's less of an expectation that Amma necessarily needs to feel immediately at home in Ghana, in Ghanaian society. And one of the things I was particularly keen to kind of focus on was the idea that while Nana sort of impresses and imposes particular ideas about Ghana onto Amma, Belinda sort of tries to guide Amma a bit more. So there's a chapter which I really enjoyed writing where Amma and Belinda are at a kind of Ghanaian community <laughs> event. And Belinda kind of serves as a conduit between Amma and the Ghanians around her in terms of translating for her, in terms of explaining to her the kind of weird little cultural nuances of of what's happening around her. And I suppose that's what I was really interested in. How do you kind of make someone feel part of a culture that they feel alienated from? Is it by sort of saying to them, you just have to be like this, you just have to accept these rules, or is it by showing them what's going on in that world? And that kind of idea of showing... I think is much more kind of present in what Belinda's doing when she's interacting with Amma in in that aspect of the novel. It's also a novel about grief and dealing Mm. with grief. And, well, as I said, it starts
2: in 2002 and it actually starts at a Ghanaian funeral. Mm, mm. Describe what happens at a Ghanaian funeral. Oh, my God.
3: Uh, They are extraordinarily long uh, and demanding and gruelling encounters. So... My father died like six years ago now. And that was my sort of first experience of really being at the heart of a Ghanaian funeral. I'd been to Ghanaian funerals before of kind of grandparents, but I was slightly kind of removed from that because I was younger and also because, you know, your grandparents, but my dad's funeral, I was sort of at the heart of things, as I say. And it's a sort of four day affair. And, you know, you wake up incredibly early in the morning um, you are surrounded by lots and lots of relatives, some of whom you know reasonably well, some of whom you don't know at all. Then there are lots of people who are just sort of interested in the kind of party-ness of the funeral, who are you know sort of milling around waiting for a free bit of food. Uh, so you're just surrounded by people the whole day. There's lots of music and lots of dancing, lots of eating, as I was sort of suggesting there. Uh, and the body is, left in, is presented in state for a while, so you're invited to and look at the body for um, however long you need to. But I think the thing that I was most struck by about my father's funeral was the public nature of the grieving. So, you know, you are in the midst of an intensely emotional, very kind of difficult experience, and you're having to do all of that with all of these people around you. And all of these people have certain expectations about how your grief will look and the sort of predominant expectation in Ghana about how grief looks is that it's hugely theatrical. So there's lots of screaming and wailing and crying and often if you don't feel like doing that for whatever reason, uh you're kind of nudged into uh, presenting yourself in that way. So, you know, it's it's an odd thing because I suppose one of the reasons why funerals are such an important ritual for all sorts of societies is because they're meant to be a means of allowing people to deal with and process grief but lots of the um, elements of guardian funerals i actually think inhibit the processing of grief they're not really about that at all and i think i approached my father's funeral in particular kind of thinking well this will be a really healing part of the process but in fact it threw up all sorts of other difficulties um so they are they are very challenging um noisy Noisy affairs in funerals,
2: and the bit that, that struck me the most was that how the people basically descended on the the coffin before it was laid and and took the you
3: know the valuable bits yeah. of the coffin, yeah. which actually seems like a really good idea, yeah, yeah, why bury it? Yeah, it's totally bizarre, and I've talked to a few Ghanaians about that um aspects of the funeral scene in the novel and lots of people didn't kind of recognize but that was actually based on my grandmother's funeral where i literally saw people sort of doing a double take before they um bury the coffin and thought hang on a minute we could actually make some money here and started bashing away all of the kind of shiny bits around the edge of the coffin and i was just stood there with my mother completely dumbstruck by it but yeah it it happened it actually happened
2: there's a a poem in the book Mm -hmm. um Michiko's Dead by uh, Jack Gilbert, mm. um, a sort of beat poet, um, that forms like a sort of a key part of the story. Mm. Um, but it's a poem that's about, again, about dealing with grief. Tell me something about that poem.
3: I love that poem. It was sort of given to me, I suppose, by a friend at university because um, he was really struck by it. And he was really struck by, it, as I was, the sort of central image, which is about coping and about resilience to use that very 2018 word, um, about resilience and about the way that we are adaptable and maybe more adaptable than we think we are to deal with um, really tricky, destabilising situations. And one of the things I particularly liked and felt was really useful in terms of introducing it into this novel was that the image of coping and carrying things and shifting things around and contorting yourself to make things work It spoke very much the process of dealing with grief, but also with the process of working through other sorts of emotional difficulties that all of the characters go through in the novel. So issues of dislocation, as we were talking about before, issues of kind of loneliness and solitude. Those are all kind of things that I think the image at the heart of this poem kind of um, speaks to. And I think equally, I was really, really taken by the idea of grief and dealing with grief being a kind of work. And that poem is very much about physical and other kinds of labour. And the novel is full of acts of labour, you know, kind of practical work in terms of what Belinda's doing around the various houses that she works in. But also emotional work and lots of the conflicts that go on between the characters and the way they resolve those conflicts. So that's between Belinda and Amma or Nana and Amma or Belinda and her mother requires work requires a kind of labour so I thought that poem just did all sorts of excellent things (laughs) yeah
2: now I just want to say one more thing and then I'll get you to to read a bit of the book for us if you would and when Belinda's thinking about that poem she describes the man struggling with the box as an image from chuckle vision (laughs) Um, rather brilliantly as we recorded this today Michael I think as this is a book about grief, we should dedicate this interview today to Barry Chuckle.
3: I think that's only right.
2: <laughs> I hope you would read us a bit.
3: Okay, so I'm going to read a section from fairly early on in Belinda's time in London. She's been here for a few days. Nana wants to go out with her to buy some clothes. That's what happens here. Earlier that day, in Belinda's new bedroom, Nana picked through Belinda's belongings. Belinda looked on tightly wrapping her fingers around her thumbs. Nana inspected each item, making disappointed noises in response to every t-shirt or pair of shorts. Nana started moaning about how she never got to have a girly, girly shopping time anymore. Nana talked about Belinda exploring her new ends. She thought they should do it quickly before the sticky weather broke. Nana promised they would have too much fun together. So they headed out for Marks and Spencer. Belinda walked just behind Nana as they made their way along noisy Brixton High Road. Flat, late summer heat hung from Belinda's shoulders. The sky was bored. The traffic was angry. Everything around them beeped or screamed. People on bikes turned around to swear at people in cars. Three striped white vans with swirling blue lights moaned. Buses bent round corners looking like sick caterpillars. Both Nana and Belinda were careful to avoid stubby black bins that choked on packets and bottles and that made Nana hiss, Lambeth council, like those words were bad kenke on her tongue. A tall man with wheels on his shoes sailed through it all peacefully. He overtook them until he became a thin, upright line between all the bodies in the distance. There was no space. The road was too full, the pavement too narrow to hold all the people pushing along it. Nana marched on, pointing forward with two certain fingers, swinging her yellow handbag with a little LVs on it. Belinda tried to match the pace, but she kept nearly bumping into everyone because the surroundings pulled at her attention so much. On her left, outside a huge shop, Iceland, a group of children played silver drums that were like the buckets she'd used when fetching water from the stream when the village pump wasn't working. The children's music was a wobbling sound that shimmered on the air. Two women with flopping hats stopped to dance in front of the band, wiggling their bottoms and holding their breasts. Near an even bigger store, Morley's, muscled men wearing small vests had arranged themselves in a circle. They casually held big guns made from coloured plastic. A joke of an army. They pressed their pretend weapons into the ground as though steadying themselves. A larger circle of girls formed around the men. The girls picked at the small jewels growing out of their belly buttons, touched the drawings on their arms, talked to the little dogs at their heels that bit at nothing. Every few seconds, one of the men pulled a trigger and water sprayed. The girls shouted like they were surprised, the dogs became furious and all the men shook hands. Nana muttered. Belinda wished she could make out the words but Nana seemed to be trying hard to speak very quietly. Opposite Superdrug, Belinda tripped and landed on her knees. A girl in a red cap with a wad of leaflets in her hands helped Belinda back up. Through a giggle, the girl asked Belinda if she was okay. It took Belinda time to get to her feet and to understand what had been said because she was distracted by the picture on the leaflet, a black baby with squeezed eyes and tears moistening dusty cheeks. The girl asked Nana to do something about saving children for only £5 a month. Nana was not interested. Belinda knew what crowds were like. She had battled through New Tafel, she had been in packs of brave pedestrians who ran across the crazy junction near Canyon Street. But it was different when so many of the rushing faces in the crowd were white. Obviously, she'd seen a brownie before. Leonardo DiCaprio and Julia Roberts in the magazines Auntie left on the bathroom floor. The big white men on the news. The silly young man in the zoo. The families at Heathrow. Belinda was familiar with the idea that their hair was weird, their voices weirder, like the sound ignored the mouth and came out through the nose. But here, they were even stranger. They seemed so determined or focused. Yes, their pale stares were very focused on something important. And they themselves were important too, with their heads up and shoulders square and faces on the edge of anger. They were certainly too important to notice her. But if, for a second, they did let their gazes drop on her, would they dislike what they saw? Would the sight of her bring more red to their faces? Stepping aside for a child who was held back by a stretchy leash surely meant for one of those yapping dogs, Belinda wondered if Nana had ever felt the same foolish fear of whites. She wondered how Nana had quieted it. Because how could you live here with that prickling fear. How could you breathe? Think. Do anything. Finally, they got to Marks and Spencer. As they passed through sliding doors, Belinda tried to find the source of the whining background music. Nana moved them on, drawn by various red signs. Belinda squinted in the hard light. Rails of dresses divided the space, blocks of shifting pattern. Alongside those were tables of blouses, some folded, others slumping messily towards the floor. Women grabbed things from hangers, checked tags trailing from cuffs before tossing the things back. Younger girls, the daughters of these women, found everything funny and so kept laughing and showing tiny teeth held together by metal wires. Nana swung round and pressed a green top with only one sleeve against Belinda's chest, smoothing it down with firm strokes. Belinda held her breath as Nana screwed up her nose, dropped the top, then tried out a blue version. Nana didn't like that one either. They went on like that for a while, with Nana thrusting spotty, frilly, velvety things at Belinda. After what felt like ten minutes, with dampness collecting at the back of Belinda's knees, Belinda's eyes found the children's wear section ahead. It was marked out by a poster that hung down from the ceiling. In the poster, a mixed-race girl wore the stupidest of smiles. Many of the adverts here had mixed-race girls in them, Belinda had realised. After Nana ushered Belinda into a changing room, Belinda snorted, because she knew exactly what Mary would want to do. Mary would want to tear the picture down, stamp on it, and tell someone in charge that they should replace it with something much, much better. A nice photo of her. Belinda snorted again. The white cubicle around her was neat and tight. Her reflection in the mirror was still. The shopper's chatter had reduced to just a swishing in the background. There was nothing but that silly thought of Mary and coolness around her ankles. But then a hand poked through the curtain. It clutched three denim shirts. So I've been talking to Michael Dunker. We've been
2: talking about his debut novel, Hold which is out now from Fourth Estate. Michael, thank you so
3: much for coming in and telling me about it. Oh, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much for having me.